politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And yes, this is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, back in the house here at CR Podcast, Blaze Media, for another terrific week of independent, fiery conservative news and views. It is September 21st, Monday, as the weather cools off and the political scene heats up. What is this with every time I go offline a little bit? It was the Jewish New Year for me over the weekend. The world comes to an end. It's just been an inside joke here. Everyone talks about it. Every time I uh, yeah, just tune out for a day or two, there's either a terrorist attack or something else transformational. So we ha- obviously have the SCOTUS uh, vacancy. I already scheduled a guest today to discuss child abuse at the hands of corona fascism. So these are two very heavy topics. We usually only do one heavy topic in a, in a given show, but today we're going to have to straddle both. Obviously, this week we are going to focus a lot on uh, the Supreme Court more than we've ever done. And we will definitely get to our guest later, uh, Professor Paul Peterson, later in the show. But everyone's messaging me, Daniel, you've been offline all weekend. You know, who's your pick? Who's your pick? And of course, those of you who have listened to this show for a long time know already, I'm not going to answer that, at least not just yet. Because it's the wrong question to ask. We have to understand what has gone wrong with the judiciary, what has gone wrong with the GOP approach to it, their approach to nominees, to understand what is wrong with what we're doing. We're sitting and grasping at straws. Well, maybe this person looks nicer, is younger, clerk for the right person, maybe try to glean some opinions as a lower court judge. And the point is, Why should we be groping in the dark for a position that's a hundred times more political than any politically elected position, yet we know less about their public statements than anything because they're either legal people or judges or sitting judges, so they don't have many statements, if any. Well, Daniel, they're judges. They're not supposed to be making statements. Well, that's the point. They're not supposed to be making political statements because they're not supposed to be making political decisions. But yet we have erroneously reconstructed the judiciary as more political and more politically binding immutably in their political opinions than the political branches. So, yeah, you better believe we want to know where they stand on the issues. Now, there's two layers to this. There's ideally what... Republicans, so-called conservatives, President Trump, should be doing, in my view, at this juncture. And I'm going to be the only one saying this. I know everyone's going to disagree with me. And then there's me having to live in the sandbox that I don't believe in. What's the next best choice that I would do? As you guys know, my view on this hasn't changed. My opinion is that we need a president and a statesman to come out precisely now that they have the upper hand. Precisely now where, you know, the conservative justice, Scalia died on a Democrat president's watch, but the Republicans have the Senate. Here, their biggest liberal died on a Republican's watch, but the Democrats don't have the Senate, Republicans have the Senate. So, on the one hand, there's this perception that Republicans are on the cusp of remaking the Supreme Court for for a long time with a permanent majority. That is precisely the time to be a statesman and say, you know what, Democrats, let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. I'll nominate whoever you find appealing if we agree to put into statute permanently an end to judicial supremacism. An end to it. It is wrong. The notion that the Supreme Court permanently affixes any political or social or even natural law, God-given law, fact or principle, and that is immutable unless you amend the Constitution, that is wrong. And it's time we end this. Everyone's missing the point. This is only so acrimonious and political because this is so political. Here's the biggest thing everyone needs to understand. 
You see, if the Supreme Court and the judiciary at large, federal judiciary, acted the way it was during the times of John Jay, the first chief justice, then yeah, I wouldn't care where they stand on the issues because it wouldn't matter. Because as Abraham Lincoln said, regarding issues that affect the whole of the people, they would just have one say in an individual case or controversy. But if that case or controversy, that opinion they give would portend a certain political principle for the nation at large, well, they have no more of a say in that than any other branch. And in fact, they have less of a say. So then I don't care. John Jay uh, lamented the fact that the Supreme Court was a boring institution that had no sway. That's how it was in the 1790s. Jay was a flamboyant politician. He was Secretary of State. He, he wanted to get involved in politics. He didn't like it. So he was Chief Justice under Washington. When Adams asked him to come back, when he left, he was like, screw it, I hated that place. It was boring as anything. It had no esteem, no weight, no dignity. So I'm all for making the Supreme Court boring again. And then I don't need a litmus test. But if you are going to tell me that we are going to have elections for Senate and President, not to know who's going to be Senator and President, but to know who is going to pick the super legislature. So it's like, you know, we elect the legislature to elect the super legislature to decide all of our issues. Then, yes, you better believe that every bit of information that we need to know about a president, where he stands on the issues, immigration, crime, homosexual agenda, life. Election law, affirmative action. You better believe by a factor of a million, we're going to need to know that up front when it comes to the SCOTUS justice. I don't believe in that. I would rather make the grand bargain that I keep talking about. Now, a lot of people will tell me, well, Daniel, why, why make a grand bargain? We're going to win. We're going to, let's keep judicial supremacism and we're going to win it. Look, I'm not going to rehash years worth of shows, but you know with the lower courts doing whatever they want. And even at the Supreme Court level, a lot of people think, oh, Daniel, fine, you're right. Roberts, even if you want to say Roberts is totally a man of the left, just write him off. Okay, but that's still four to four. If we appoint a good one, we're going to have five to four. Look, it's not true. In reality... We have one Clarence Thomas. Alito is close, but not guaranteed. And with Kavanaugh and, and, and Gorsuch, they will only get worse over time. Remember, a lot of people don't understand. They're like, okay, we need one more justice. And it's like drinking coffee with a fork. It's like every time you think you got it, it slips out. There's a reason for that. And this cuts to the core of what we need to look at. It's not a bean counting of how many votes you have. It's the fact that Republican and even conservative-oriented justices get gun-shy. The same way the political Republicans, when they actually have the power to enact something, they don't use it as president, as Senate majority, governor, state legislature. Republicans are the most vociferous for conservative causes when they have no power to affect that outcome. When they're in the minority. So you'll see justices, okay, you know, when the Democrats have five justices, all the four Republicans are are strong. When you have Roberts joining them, so then the other ones will be strong because they 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 don't have to put themselves out there as being racist. Remember, most of what we have in the courts is enmeshed in 14th Amendment jurisprudence or similar things to that, where it's racially sensitive, it's identity sensitive, and they just don't have the guts. They might be originalists speaking in a Federalist Society uh, lecture hall, but they don't have the guts. It's the same thing every Republican is conservative, except none of them are when it comes to uh, actually enacting it when the rubber meets the road. You need to have someone that you know is going to be a Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas doesn't give a darn. He literally writes opinions all the time saying 60 years worth of court opinions on the Civil Rights Act are built on on, on a um, legal fiction. He'll actually say that. So over time, if you get another justice, even if that justice, let's say, is a Clarence Thomas, 
which we're going to get to in a minute, how hard that is to find. But even if they are, you think you have five votes? We've already said that. Roe v. Wade, at best, at best, you have two. We only have one guaranteed. At best, you have Alito with you. Kavanaugh has made it clear he believes Hellerstadt, much less Roe and Casey, are stereodecisis. Gorsuch also is not, I mean, we don't know exactly where he's on that issue, but I mean, this guy created transgenderism in Title VII. So the notion that we're at four and we just need a fifth is not true, even if you could find that fifth. So so the notion that we're somehow going to get a five-justice court to do whatever we want is just not true. Anyone who thinks that is not paying attention. Precisely because of the failures of the past generation. See, conservatives had this complex about Souter. Oh my gosh, we can't make another Souter mistake. So they focus, they set the bar so low, like, oh, let's just not appoint someone who's going to always join with the liberals. But, well, shouldn't we have someone who's going to always be with the conservatives on the issues of consequence? Hence, we got Roberts. Hence, we got Kavanaugh. We got Gorsuch. We still haven't rectified that. So as we approach the nominee, we have to understand the process needs to change. Rather than this stealth thing of like, oh, I like the person's identity. I like their life story. I like they sound kind of conservative. We need to be guaranteed. We need to do this through the front door. Stop having these stealth nominees that agree to the Democrats during the confirmation hearings. Yes, 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 you're right. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. Oh, Daniel, don't worry. They're just fooling the Democrats. But once they get on there, they'll rule with us. Yeah, right. Rather than trying to fool the Democrats and instead wind up fooling ourselves, let's just change the paradigm. Trump needs to get up there and say, look, I don't believe in judicial supremacism, but if we're going to make it like that, the Democrats have their guarantees, we're going to have our guarantees that they will vote with the Constitution. The 14th Amendment doesn't mean this. I have a list of 15 questions that I put out for the Gorsuch nomination. One of them was the transgenderism, and clearly they, they were never asked. And if you're, you're, if you're not going to do it publicly, at least do it privately. At least do it privately. It's funny, for all of the flack that Trump and Republicans get for having litmus tests, the sick irony is they don't have them. Like, Democrats are like, yeah, you got out of the person they're going to overturn. No, they didn't. We should get out of them. The same way the left knows with their people. So that's what we need to frame first, which is why, if you want to know who I would pick, and, and I'm not disparaging any of the names that are being floated. It's just we don't really fully know. Most of them seem to be likely, I would probably better than what we've had but are they going to be an impervious Clarence Thomas we don't have a way of really knowing that it's not it's there's nothing against them but you need a guarantee which is why I'm for like Ted Cruz I know he said he wouldn't take it but someone like a Ted Cruz who is a hundred percent openly political he is a political animal he would relish just using this to get what he wants See, the times where Cruz goes soft is when he's already when he's worried about electoral politics. Here, he has nothing to worry about, whereas most other people, it's not just the electoral politics. It's the cultural aspects. Even if they don't stand for election, they're worried about being looking like a racist. Ted wouldn't care. We all know that. He would be much better suited at this point to be on the court than to be in the Senate. Or if you're looking for a judge that has a paper trail of writings that are so emphatic on issues like crime and, and uh, you know, religious liberty and First Amendment, Judge Ho, Judge Jim Ho, Fifth Circuit. I mean, he's got the paper trail, which is why they'll never pick it. But again, like, the left got this with Sotomayor. They got it with Ginsburg. Why shouldn't we get that? So what I don't like automatically is that we've gone to identity politics right away rather than ideological. Well, Daniel, this can't be partisan. It is partisan. 
I'm the most bipartisan. I'm the person that wants to say, look, I'll, I'll give Schumer his choice nominee, whatever you want, in return for ending judicial supremacism. They could decide bankruptcy cases. They could decide some civil and criminal cases. They do not set national politics or social trends in this country. They are not the final say on that. So you can pick whoever you want. I'm the most nonpartisan of all. But if we are going to all play in the sandbox of judicial supremacism and the left bats a thousand every time, then I want to bat a thousand too on every issue. I want that. And, and look, they're very hard to find because we don't really have people like that. You see, the conservative legal movement is no more, is no less or more than the conservative political movement. And the same way we have 2.3 guys that have the guts to really say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done in the political branches, we have the same problem among the judges. They're intellectually, they kind of agree with us. But when the rubber meets the road, are they going to say the last 50 years of court rulings on these opinions is garbage? Obergefell is garbage. Bostock is garbage. Roe and Casey are garbage. That's kind of hard to know. And by default, if you don't see it in them, you can't assume it's there. So right away, <clears throat> Trump boxes himself in by saying basically he's going to pick a woman. I get it. I get the optics. But you don't want to back yourself into that corner. Because what if you can't find one with guarantees? I mean, this is what Reagan did. And I understand the politics of the time. <clears throat> it was the first uh, pick, first female. But we got Sandra Day O'Connor. <clears throat> we got screwed. I don't want that to happen again. You know, Judge Ho, I want someone with a paper trail of Judge Ho. I don't know that we have that. So that's the thing. I don't have much to say. I know a lot of you are waiting to hear me say that, but I've made my, I've earned my keep on the judicial issue speaking about the premise of judicial supremacism. Who is good and who is not? I mean, look, I'll tell you this much. With Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you know I saw it a mile away. I said it from day one. Among the picks, um, the ones being bantied about the three women, um, Amy Barrett, um, Barbara Lagoa, and Allison Rushing to a lesser extent, but she is in the running. I don't yet, at least from what I have seen, you know, maybe there's intel that I haven't yet seen, and, and I'm you know going to make some calls today. There's nothing that scares me. But again, that's the problem. That's not good enough. If you're going to say this is a life appointment and they're a super legislature, yeah, I'm going to want to know with certitude where they are on that list of questions. Birthright citizenship, the plenary power doctrine, certain criminal law in the Fourth Amendment, lots of aspects of the 14th Amendment. I'm going to want to know. And again, that does not require prejudging a known case before us. But 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 that is that does require us to know. I mean, oh, I'm appointing an originalist. Okay, so that means you believe that this entire 14th Amendment stuff is garbage, right? Well, uh, not that much. I mean, we kind of believe it, but we're we're too scared to rule that way. Well, then you're worthless to us. So I don't know, but I'm just saying right off the bat, don't do to the judicial horse race list what 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 many of you guys do. With political candidates, the whole um, identity politics, the life story, the race, the this. Oh, this is a black conservative. This is a Latino conservative. This is a, a Navy SEAL, Dan Crenshaw. I mean, that's lovely, but, you know, it, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. We had this with the um, Kimberly Klaychik thing, you know, in Baltimore running for Congress. Now, mind you, she's never going to win. It's a D plus 100 district. Oh, look at this great. The Democrats are bad for blacks and she's black and she's has these great ads walking in and high heels. And look, I understand that there's a there's a time and a place for optics, even for those of us who are into into substance. But at the end of the day. She started now saying, well, Trump is better for blacks because he supported jailbreak. Really? I mean, this is what we need. 
And we see that every time. <clears throat> so don't take a life story. Oh, this is a Latino. Oh, this is a, she has a bunch of kids and appears to be a very strong Catholic and the Democrats attacked her. I, that That's all great, but it doesn't prove with the degree of certitude that we need where if they're going to have the guts to actually rule a certain way. I was on the Amy Barrett bandwagon as a way of getting rid of Kavanaugh because we knew she would be better. I liked her writings, seemed to be good on stereodicysis and judicial supremacism. Yes, her, her religious background. Really, all of the ones that are being bantied about now do appear to be much more socially conservative. Gorsuch, like Episcopalian and the church he belongs to is kind of weird and... um. He uh, he reeked of libertarianism just from his writings. We we knew it from day one. So I think we're, we're starting off a little better. But I mean, could I could I swear to you? And, and again, you know, rather than being a clerk for for Kennedy like these other two, two were, she clerked for Scalia. <clears throat> but could, could I tell you for sure she would overturn Bostock and Obergefell? And Roe, any one of these nominees that are being talked about, 100% they believe intellectually it's garbage. I know. But would they have the guts given the politics around those agendas? I don't know. And that's the problem. This is the point I'm trying to make you. Whoever it is, more strongly than I feel about any particular choice, is that Trump needs to get a blood oath. The people and the Republican senators and the so-called conservative leaders that are vetting them, you need to know that. Whether it's public or private, and you need to stop hiding it. Because the irony is that every nominee now is going to get treated as a Clarence Thomas, even if they're someone like Gorsuch who downright supported transgenderism. So you may as well go and get it if you're going to be accused of having a litmus test. We've been making this point again and again. We need it open. Stop trying to fool the Democrats when you're fooling nobody but ourselves. That's what we need. That's the thing. Lagoa, I don't know much about her. I know a lot of people are concerned about the identity politics, but to be fair, I don't think she herself has played the identity card. I think others pushing her see that. It doesn't, I mean, Miguel Estrada is good, right? But they'll never pick him because he's, <clears throat> I guess, because he's already pushing 60. Um, I, I don't know enough. I mean, DeSantis is pushing her. DeSantis is really good on judicial supremacism. He's one of the best out there. But again, I mean, I'm not going to take it third hand. I like DeSantis, but he, uh, privately, he used to push to me like, people to endorse just congressional candidates. And I looked at something and I, I said to him, hey, dude, like this guy is not you. You might be good, but this guy is not you. So, I mean, you know, that happens sometimes. People, it's a home state thing. And I'm not, again, I'm not knocking her. I don't have a smoking gun that I have a problem with her. I don't yet know that I have the confidence that it's what we're looking for. We need to know that. And my point is, if we go from now until Friday without having that confidence, then that's not good enough. And it's true to a certain extent of Amy Barrett as well. Now, an interesting pick is Allison Rushing. She's only 38. Now, a lot of people like that because <laughs> you get the most years out of it. Although, again, you never know when um, <clears throat> what God has in store. On the other hand, people feel it will be tough to sell if, if she's so young. I don't have that degree of confidence that I have from a Ted Cruz or a Jim Ho with her either. But what I will say is if you just put the package together, being a Thomas clerk, having had some solid rulings on immigration in the Fourth Circuit, and the fact that she was a, she worked for Alliance Defending Freedom, fighting the homosexual agenda, that to me just... Of the three, it, it doesn't mean she in actuality is the best. The other ones could be better for all I know. But just from what we could see, I have the most information 
to give me the most confidence. But I'm not saying that's my pick yet. I'm just saying of those three that are being discussed, that's where you put <clears throat> you put it together. I find that to be the most interesting pick so far, but you know, it's still early. I don't know. And I'm going to humbly tell you that. And this is part of the problem that we can't assume. You can't say, "Oh, you know, this person has a great life story. This person is good looking." This, you know what I mean? Like, this is what people do. Oh, it will sell great on during a confirmation hearing. Or, like, you can't go based off of a confirmation hearing. This is a life appointment. If you can't get who you want with a GOP majority and with Trump as president, then stop lying to me that you're ever going to get the right person. Which I believe is not going to matter anyway, if you, you know, if you ask my opinion. I don't even care. I think what we need to do is cut a deal with the Democrats and say, hey, they, they're scared they're going to lose the court. But in reality, they're not really. I mean, it's going to get it should get better if you make the right choice. But I would much rather just end judicial supremacism. And that would have to apply to the lower courts as well. But no, nobody seems to care about that. So, yeah, I want the best pick we're going to get. So we're going <clears> to <throat> develop this. More throughout the week, and I'm sorry I'm losing my voice here. We're going to develop this. We're going to have some guests on. Probably tomorrow we'll have a law professor on to delve into some of this. Um, but send me, send me your concerns, your comments, your questions about some of the nominees. I'm, I'm learning this as you do. I know what I feel about the court. I don't know these human beings. I cannot peer into their souls enough and I know some people said, well, Daniel, we didn't know Thomas and Scalia would be that good. The same way we didn't know the others would wind up being that bad. You're right. We didn't. We lucked out. But now that we have not gotten Thomas and Scalia, remember, 13 of the last 19 picks have been by Republican presidents. Okay? 13 to 6. Yet there are only four justices out of the 13 that could even be called originalists in any way. Scalia, Thomas, Rehnquist, and Alito. And Rehnquist and Alito are not, you know, the same level as Thomas and Scalia. At a 13 since Nixon, it's been horrible. And a lot of them obviously were downright horrible. Gave us Roe in itself. So, remember, you know, you cannot assume things. Apply the same principles we know to political office. This needs to be true by a factor of a thousand. But I want to get back to the virus. So there's a lot going on with that. I had a very special guest scheduled for today. So folks, among all of the new items I have to discuss with you on the virus, and, and they are many, there's a lot of news on excess deaths or the lack thereof, as we talked about on Friday. There's a lot of news about the flu and its interaction with the virus and all of the information that's coming out now that demonstrates this so-called twindemic that they're talking about will be pretty unlikely to materialize. I have to get back to the mental health issue and the problem with our youth. Because as you well know, this is near and dear to me. I got several kids, young kids in elementary school that I had to pull out of private school because the conditions that were created were just so awkward, so draconian. I couldn't expose my kids to that. A while back, I saw an article by Professor Paul Peterson in a publication, Education Next. You should check it out online. Terrific publication, The Price Students Pay When Schools Are Closed. And I said, I, ha- I got to get him on the show. Uh, professor Peterson is a professor of government and director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. He is also also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, which is over at Stanford University, and he is a senior editor at Education Next, a journal of opinion and research on education, very much a prolific writer on national education policy. So certainly you're going to want to hear what he has to say on the intersection of the virus, our response to it, and the toll on our education and mental health 
to our nation's youngsters. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on The Blaze. Well, okay. So there is a lot to get to in really a short period of time. We might have to do this uh, over a period of several shows, but let's just start with some of the figures we're seeing. You look at this poll out of University of Chicago um, response tracking study um, by NORC at the University of Chicago that the majority of Americans aged 18 through 34 they feel that they are isolated. Um, 26% are experiencing mental health issues uh, compared with a lower rate among older adults. It seems like, ironically, the younger you get, the more mental health problems we have, even though the virus itself is, is really not dangerous to them at all. Um, we're seeing in many localities a 50 to 60% increase in drug overdoses. We're seeing the suicides. If you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing on college campuses and then maybe work backwards to younger kids, because typically we haven't seen a lot of suicides among real young kids, pre-adolescents, but my concern is that we're going to start seeing that. So what are you seeing your general pulse of mental health among school-age kids and, and college kids? Well, you know, the people I know best are my, my own grandchildren. And, uh, you know, one of my grandchildren in particular has definitely suffered uh, or was suffering very badly when the schools uh, closed last spring. So his parents uh, switched him to private school this fall, uh, which are open. So now he's back in school. He's just happy as a clam. So the great thing about young people is they do recover, but boy, do they, you know, the older people, they tend to be, you know, they tend to have family, they have, tend to have connections. And uh, so they are able to work around this, this isolation unless they are totally isolated. And the other very serious problem is in uh, the uh, homes for the uh, elderly, nursing homes and so forth, where they won't let anybody come in. And that, that was a terrible thing to, to do to old people, to, to leave them totally isolated. But the same is true for young people uh, because they are, you know, that's the time in their life that they're building their lives. And they're doing that in part by building social relationships. Building social relationships is what we do early on in life. And we rely on them the rest of our life. You all know that how many friends you had from high school and college that you still are in touch with many years later. So, yeah, this is a very serious problem for young people. So when you when you talk about schools shutting down in your article, you, you list seven reasons why um, we are paying the price for students that are going without a physical in-person education. A lot of us are always looking to innovate. Um, innovate in education, innovate in other spheres of policy. And certainly the internet has provided a robust outlet for innovation and doing things differently than we've done before. And prior to this, and there might've been a thought, and I, I even probably bought into this, that our education system is a little bit outdated. And perhaps maybe you could do online education, a kid sitting at a desk in front of his bed in his bedroom, and maybe that would work. You say the jury is in already, the verdict is in, and this has not worked. Could you describe some of the research you've seen on this and observations you've had over the last six months, why online education is not working? Well, you know, I uh, wrote a book called Saving Schools from Horace Mann to uh, Virtual Learning. So I really end that book on a very positive note, saying that for all the problems our schools have been facing in recent decades, the future might be pretty good because we'll have online learning. So like you, I was thinking this might be a window to the future. I didn't think it would happen overnight. I thought technology needed to advance a lot further than it currently was before you could uh, really have digital education of high quality. But I was optimistic about the future. 
But, you know, the, the early returns on that have been pretty disappointing. If you're getting all of your education online, as we're finding in some charter schools, some charter schools are entirely virtual, and they have been experimenting in this space. But the studies that have been done of that come back showing Unlike other charter schools, which are really quite successful, these virtual schools are not. So the kids are not learning as much there. So it's not like you would want to eliminate them. Some kids need to learn entirely online. Let's say that somebody is disabled and they just can't get out of the house. and Or maybe they're sick for three months or there's something in their life that prevents them from going to school. You don't want to eliminate that opportunity, but you don't want to depend upon that for all children. That, that, that People need to have social relationships. So what we're doing in the virtual space now is calling it blended learning. Let's go to class and let's use the tools that are available uh, through the Internet uh, to help the teacher in the classroom. But it's done in the classroom under the concept of blended learning rather than strictly online. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing that in the private schools. But my problem that I'm seeing certainly in the private school space Maybe some of the public school districts, and and I know within a couple months, probably they're all going to head to this area where we're going to win the battle of school closures. So they're going to open up the schools. A lot of schools are open. But in my view, they're not open. And this leads me to your, your number three item in your article, rules and regulations reduce learning. So I pull my kids out of the private school because... So they're all in cages of plexiglass around their desk. They have to wear a mask for six, seven hours a day, um, even at a very shockingly young age. They have all these regulations as to what you could do. You can't play football. You can't play with each other at recess or you can't play with balls. And then there's just this obsessiveness with um, it's almost as if the learning is about COVID. You know, it's not like, okay, let's do this, get around it and get back to learning. Everything seems to revolve around that. And what I'm questioning is at some point, is it even worth opening? And, you know, both from a practical standpoint of all the time that is taken away, but also my concern is the mental health. I have a kindergarten kid just learning to forge relationships with other children. And what does it mean to him? What does it tell him that the first time You are exposed to a large number of kids in a school setting, which this is his first year. Everyone is wearing a diaper on their face. You literally cannot see their faces. And you're living in this aura of fear. So isn't there a need not just to open the schools, but to break through the premise that's undergirding this degree of fear among school-age children in terms of the virus? Well, I'm not sure I would go quite as far as you have, but I will say this. My uh, my other grandson, uh, who is just entering first grade, I noticed that he doesn't know the names of the other children. Uh, because I, I, And I assume it's because they're all wearing masks. And so it's really hard to, you know, identify people when everybody's got their face covered up. Uh, but... I still think it's better than nothing. Um, I I agree with all your points. I think masks make it difficult to learn. It's going to definitely reduce the amount of learning that kids make. How do you understand the teacher? If the teacher has a mask over her face, or maybe she's allowed to take the mask off under some circumstances. Maybe they won't be complying. You know, one of the things you have to wonder about is just how compliant people are going to be over a sustained period of time when the rules and the regulations don't make much sense. And, and you know, since we know that kids don't spread this disease and kids don't get sick from this disease except under highly unusual circumstances, all of this is sort of, you know, total waste of, uh, of learning time. But uh, I, I do think it's better than not going to school, but I I, I think there's a, going to be a huge loss of learning as a result of all these ridiculous restrictions. No doubt about it. Because then there's the other side that that I'm hearing about in the school that the, the class my older son, fifth grade, would have likely been in, the teacher didn't even start yet. So 
Why not? What they're doing is this. Anyone who's exposed to anyone who might have been asymptomatic, they have to quarantine. Anyone who got in a class, the class is shut down, even though the spread usually had nothing to do with the um, with the school. They got it in the community or at home. And so my concern is, I, I understand what you're saying, pound per pound, you want some sort of in-person interaction. But my concern is making this the new normal. You know, when it was black and white, everyone understood this wasn't normal. This is, it's shut down versus open. My concern is that they're making this a new long-term normal, that this is what it means for schools to be open. It's with the plexiglass, the distancing, the masks, the um you know, really harassing the kids. Some schools even hired new faculty to deal with this stuff. And then, like I said, the constant disruption of classes being shut down, individuals having to quarantine even when they don't even have the virus. Um, How do we break through that in the long run and ensure that this doesn't rapidly become what schooling looks like? Well, this is uh, this is an increasing concern because we don't know when the uh, when the public health people are going to decide that this is no longer a serious problem. I mean, the problem for young people today is less than the problem that you run into every year with influenza. You know, it's much more serious problem for people who are over the age of 80 or people who are even over the age of 70 might be a significant issue. Uh, And for people with pre-existing conditions, it's an issue, Uh, serious problems that would be aggravated by this, just like it is with influenza. So, uh, but if we're going to shut down every time we have a flu, we're going to be shutting down always. And secondly, you know, as the year wears on, it looks more and more like this is going to be a full year of disaster. Uh, already in so many big cities, they're delaying the opening of the school year, even the two-day-a-week masks version of it. They're saying, oh, we can't start until November. I'm hearing November already. And you don't, And some of the colleges are even thinking about, let's not, it, maybe we'll have to be closed for the entire year. You know, they, they started off saying maybe we've got to start late. Now they've said, okay, the first term, maybe it's going to be the second term. You know, how if you're in the standards for opening are are constantly rising, you know, it's almost as if there's one COVID death somewhere, then you've got to remain closed as if there's nothing else that's important in this world. It's unbelievable how single minded the media have become. And, And then people get fearful when the media talk about only one thing. So I wanted to go over the education achievement gap that you're seeing, because, again, my concern is once you raise the specter that this is what it means to be open or be closed, but even to be open, but have this much time out, almost like the impression I get in the private schools here, and I know they're scared of the government. A lot of it they probably don't believe in. But it's like, we just got to be open just for the sake of being open. But then it lowers the bar of what it means to have a functioning school. And I'm seeing that in my son's peers because, again, I'm homeschooling him with a small group and we work them hard. I mean, you know, we're not going to slack off, but I'm seeing, oh, my gosh, there is a big gap there from that six months. Are you concerned that? this will almost water down the amount of material and skills that we expect to cover in a given month or year. Well, we on this, we have pretty solid evidence. If schools close for a significant period of time, there is a loss of learning that reduces the ability of the student to acquire the skills later on in life. So we know that for every year of education, one uh, is able to earn in the labor market about 10% more, 10% more. A year's worth of education is worth about 10% earnings in the labor market and also for the economy of the country as a whole. So we know that when there were teacher strikes in Latin America uh, that lasted for a prolonged period of time, when people looked back many years later, they found out that the adults who were children at the time they couldn't go to school lost about a year's worth of learning 
learning if the if the schools were closed for the year. They never make it up. And if it's for three months, we know that uh, uh, it, there have been occasions when schools have had to close because of uh, disasters or because of uh, um, uh, snowstorms or uh, various other uh, terrible events. And it shows up downstream. The kids have lower uh, performance on standardized tests. And then if it's for a prolonged period, we see a loss of learnings, the chance, the likelihood that you'll go to college, the likelihood that you will graduate from high school. We're going to see an increase in the dropout rate as a result of this. There's no doubt about that. Do you fear that there is a coming wave of suicides even among younger kids? We're certainly seeing it with older, uh, you know, college age, uh, according to a lot of the data that we're getting from, you know, state by state with suicide hotlines going up. Is there a concern that this is going to percolate down to younger ages? Well, it's a it's a risk. I don't know. I, I'm not a specialist in this area. The data aren't there yet. So I think that's a little bit uh, in the area of wait and see. Uh, but it's certainly a risk and something that uh, is a, a potentially alarming fact. And, and, you know, one of the points that you're making here is that it's not COVID versus you know, not COVID. It's when you have COVID, you may have a problem as a result of that. But if you shut down, you may have many other problems because of that. So you're always balancing. Life is a matter of balance. It's not a matter of single factor. Let's do this and only focus on this. And that's what's wrong about what's going on right now. I so badly don't want to hit into the left uh uh, guardrail on the highway. I'm just going to drive into the right guardrail. Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't have that luxury. You have to have a degree of precision and balancing, as you noted. One more thing. Um, you know, one yeah, of the sure. things we do is we let people drive their car, even though 35,000 people die because of accidents. Yep. You know, if we wanted to prevent people from dying, we shouldn't allow them to drive a car. And look, and look, Professor, I mean, the data is 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 pretty clear. We saw that, ironically, coming full circle during the lockdown itself, because people weren't driving, driving absolutely um, uh, trauma deaths were down. But I mean... Is that a good thing? I don't I don't I mean not the death part, but I'm saying the shutdown. I don't think anyone would say it is. It's a fact of life and and you got to go on with that even though yeah, I mean if you lock everyone down and abolish cars, you'll have fewer car deaths. I mean, I guess that's the point you're making. Exactly. So one more thing uh just before we let you go, we've seen this inequality. A lot of the people pushing these draconian policies are some of the same people that claim to be very concerned about economic and racial inequality. Um, We've certainly seen in the adult population in terms of the lockdown and the employment market, it has dramatically harmed blacks and Hispanics more than whites, um, both because of uh, black owned businesses have gotten hit worse. Um, Also in terms of the workers a lot of the higher income people have the type of jobs where, all right, you know, you could work from home. A lot of them are even enjoying it. Um, they don't have to travel. Some even work less from home and they still get paid and they're having the time of their lives. Whereas um, a lot of the more blue collar jobs, they were completely cut. You look at the bars and the restaurants and stores and everything and they really took it on the chin. So we certainly see that inequality there. You write about such inequality by having the school shut. Could you explain why that wouldn't affect everyone equally? Well, uh, it certainly is the case that uh, people with means find alternatives. And so, you know, if, if the public schools are going to shut, um, the people with resources find alternatives like you do. You create homeschooling with your, your neighbors and uh, people with education, can, because they are educated, are able to teach the children themselves. And people with fewer resources, cultural resources, financial resources are much more dependent upon the existing facilities. And so there's every I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't think we're going to uh, aggravate the the gap between the rich and the poor as a result of this. And that's sort of ironic because, you know, we've, we've been experiencing a decline in the gap between 
blacks and whites and Hispanic and whites over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Ever since No Child Left Behind, there's been some definite improvement in the relationship between uh, black uh, uh, children and, and white children. But uh, that's certainly at risk. That, and I, I doubt that it, it's all, you know, we are not testing in schools now because the schools don't want to be tested. The teachers don't want to be tested, and nobody wants these facts to become known, but they are going to happen whether or not we know them or not. That That is certainly very scary because what you're saying does resonate very well with me. You know, I am not wealthy, but I'm not poor, and I'm obviously educated, so I've put my passion into this homeschooling, and I find so many resources with history. I give over my passion to them, and that's a, that's a good point because you, you have a lot of parents that – they might be incapable of that, but in a normal school setting, the kids were able to thrive. And this has happened for many generations where uh, the kids got more education than the parents did. Um, they don't have a workaround. Uh, I guess that's that's the point you have made. Again, very long but important article, The Price Students Pay When Schools Are Closed by Professor Paul Peterson, um, Director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. Thanks for joining us today and keep us updated uh, as this situation unfolds. Well, thank you for having me on The Blaze. I appreciate it. Take care. God bless. And that is it for today. I went a little bit long there because obviously wanted to discuss two issues there. Um, look, it's a change of pace. I mean, you know, Professor Peterson is a well-respected academic, Harvard this, we're not talking about some right-wing firebrand here. There are plenty of people out there making the case that, you know, the threat of the virus to, to, to children is a fraction of the threat of the lockdown policies and the response to it. And why so many Republican governors, much less Democrat governors, but, but even Republican governors, continue to push the school shutdowns and the draconian fake reopenings when there are plenty of people that are respected academics that could speak to this, that could give voice to their administrations, they could call in to advise them, it, it does shock me. Um, this is an issue that I really think if you dug down to the people who are intellectually honest, it will break down a lot of the traditional ideological uh, barriers and you'll you, you'll be able to have a lot of bipartisanship on this. And uh, that's the lesson I wanted you guys to take out from that today. Anyway, I am out of time. My voice is half gone today, uh, but I'm glad I was still able to do the show. Again, let me know your comments, your questions, concerns about the impending SCOTUS nominee. We're going to cover that thoroughly this week, as we have always done. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.